0: Morning. Great to see all of you guys. It's good to be here. Uh, Once again, happy Grandparents Day to all the grandparents. We're so thankful for all that you do. Uh, Five years ago, uh, October 2017, we began a brand new sermon series called The Story of God and His People. And this series was designed to be a five-year journey through the uh, entire Old Testament narrative. Now think about where you were and what the world looked like in 2017. Donald Trump had just begun the first year of his presidency. That October, the Los Angeles Dodgers had a World Series matchup against the biggest cheaters of all time, the Houston Astros. Ooh. Spider-Man officially joined the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the movie Homecoming. I don't know about you, but all of those things seem like they happened Forever ago, I don't know if it's because we had a world pandemic in the years since then, but five years is a long time. And that year, we began this series with a plan to study the Old Testament every fall, five years. So since then, we've uh, looked at the Exodus. We talked about uh, the conquest of the Promised Land in Joshua. We looked at the era of kings, and especially David. And then last year, we talked about uh, the prophets, their ministry during exile. And so today, I'm I'm really proud to say that we made it to the end. We actually made it. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but pastors are notorious for getting really excited about things and then kind of forgetting about them a few months later. And so sticking with this plan for five years uh, is something that uh, I'm really happy that we were able to do it. And I'm excited for this last part of the story. And so today we're going to begin this series. It's going to be a little bit shorter than the past ones, only five weeks. But we're going to be looking at this final era in Israel's story, the era of Ezra, Nehemiah, post-exilic Israel. And this is a time when God brings Israel home to rebuild and restore. Now, before we really dive in, I want to talk a little bit about this part of the story. Uh, Nehemiah are generally not as well-loved or as commonly studied as the rest of the Old Testament. If this was the Lord of the Rings, these books are kind of like the middle of the two towers where things get a little bit slow and boring. I don't know, that's why I never finished reading all three. Sorry, Mom. If uh, this was... Uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, then Ezra and Nehemiah is kind of like Thor, The Dark World, you know, like pretty good, but not anyone's favorite. If this is The Office, then it's season eight after Michael leaves when nobody really wants to watch anymore. Well, I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm not saying that it's not good, but they just don't get the love a lot of the other books and stories uh, in the Old Testament get. And there are, are several reasons for this. For one thing, not a whole lot happens uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah. There's not these big, just action moments. There's not these memorable events. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There's no marching around the walls of Jericho. There's no David and Bathsheba. There aren't a lot of quotable passages for us to memorize or you know, put in an Instagram post. On top of that, these books can be challenging. There are large sections that feel... You know, kind of maybe legalistic, a little offensive, maybe even contrary uh, to the grace of the New Testament. And so people tend not to be as excited about maybe a sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah. But in spite of that, in spite of those challenges, in spite of some of the things that I think are generally true about these books, I do think they have a lot to offer the church. And even more than that, I think they have a lot to offer our church right here and right now. Cerritos Baptist Church, September 2022. These books speak directly to some of the realities that we're facing today. See, Ezra and Nehemiah are about the years following this period of exile. If you remember uh, from last year, the prophet series, uh, the Israel went into exile in Babylon. They got taken... From their homes, they were defeated in battle. Their country lay in ruins, and they got taken to this other country where they were uh, prisoners in a foreign land for several generations. And what we see in our, our passage today is that in Ezra and Nehemiah, they get to come home. They get to go back to Israel. They come back to the promised land. And so these books primarily are about rebuilding. In one sense, rebuilding the physical structures uh, necessary for life and worship and holiness. But more than that, what this book is really about, what these passages, these stories are really about, is rebuilding a holy community committed to God's purpose for their lives. Rebuilding a people of God who are going to move his story forward. And so obviously the circumstances and the theological context are very different from where we are today. But this larger theme of coming home and rebuilding is so relevant for us right now. As we come out of the pandemic, as we come out of uh, just several challenging years, we know that there is work to be done in rebuilding our community, rebuilding relationships, rebuilding ministries, not just getting back to where we were before, but continuing this story that God has for our church and our lives. And so I think these books are so relevant to where we are and what God is doing. And so as we go through these books, I just want to keep this in front of you. Our goal for this series, our goal as we read these stories, men like Ezra and Nehemiah, it's not to copy what they did. We're not being given a template for rebuilding that we're supposed to follow. But what we can do is ask some simple questions. We can learn about how God works in these kinds of rebuilding seasons and how we can prepare ourselves to join in this work of restoration. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ezra. We're going to be in uh, Ezra chapter 1 and 2 today. And we'll begin with Ezra 1-1. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to the to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord, in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridat the treasurer, who counted them to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. All right, in case you missed it, those were matching silver bowls. Now, I don't know if they matched with each other, if they match with the gold bowls or if they match with the silver dishes. And I actually did try to figure this out, but it's not an important detail. But this list of dinnerware gives us kind of a good representation of the overall tone and feel of this chapter on first glance. It's presented mostly as pretty fast, straightforward history. There's something kind of deeply administrative and organized about this chapter. I bet my mom loved reading all these details. And you know, on one hand, it is true. This chapter is focused on describing a historical event and getting some of these details right. And in case your ancient Near Eastern political history is a little rusty, let me just give you some of the background uh, because this is important for what's happening in the story. So basically, in, in the years leading up to this, and, 538 BC, the Persian army came in and defeated the Babylonians. Now, if you remember, again, from the exile, exile period, the Babylonians were the ones who uh, defeated Israel. They took over this whole eastern, ancient Near Eastern area, and they took Israel into exile. And so eventually Babylon's power would weaken. The Persians rose to power. And so this guy Cyrus becomes ruler of the world surrounding Israel. Now Cyrus's policy, his foreign policy, was very different from the Babylonians. What the Babylonians thought was that in order to control all these different territories that they were in power over, that they should take all of the most influential, wealthiest people, take a large part of the population, and put them right at the heart of the kingdom in Babylon, because they could kind of keep an eye on the people there. They could control the people because they're close by. Cyrus's belief was that there was a different way of doing things. What he wanted to do was to gain by sending them home. And not gain the goodwill of the people, but also gain the goodwill of all of these various local gods, various local deities that they all worshipped. And so Cyrus is basically saying, if I send people home, then I will have the favor of all these guys, I don't know which one of them is right, but if one of them is, then they're going to like me. And so because of this policy, Israel gets to go home. They get to go back to Jerusalem with all their possessions, with these treasures from the temple, and their 410 matching silver bowls. And so Israel going home, it's a big deal. This is a huge event uh, in their history. But it feels like a pretty mundane opening chapter. There's no fanfare. There's no celebration. We don't get to see the moment when people find out they're going home. Uh, instead, it's kind of viewed from a more historical factual perspective. And I think there's an important reason for this and, and what we see in the way the author, who's called the chronicler, the way he writes this chapter and the way he leaves us little hints and subtle clues To give us a sense of what this is really about. Because behind all of the administrative decrees, behind all the geopolitics, this chapter is ultimately about a God who is at work. This is about God keeping his promises. So let's just go back to the opening words of the chapter, verse one. It says, In the first year, of Cyrus, King of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, King of Persia, uh, to make a proclamation. So right from the outset, the chronicler is reinterpreting this event in terms of God's ongoing story. And he does this first, but the very kind of first thing he says is to tell us that that this happens in order to fulfill this word of the Lord from Jeremiah. And just Referencing this name, referencing this prophet, it would mean so much to Israel. It would trigger something deep within their souls. See, if you remember from last year's series on the prophets, Jeremiah had spoken to Israel in the years leading up to the exile. And he did a lot of things. He called them out for unfaithfulness. He pointed out the sin, the idolatry, the injustice, and he attributed the exile to all of this that had been happening. But he also offered a word of encouragement, of hope, of comfort. And this is one that Israel would look to during these challenging years of captivity. Uh, in Jeremiah 29, God spoke these words through the prophet. He says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I'll gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Chapter 30, verse 3, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. Skipping down to verse 18, this is what the Lord says, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honor and they will not be disdained. Verse 22, these key powerful words. So you will be my people and I will be your God. See, this prophecy and, and others like it, this is Israel's main source of hope throughout these years in exile. And essentially what God is saying through Jeremiah is, listen, Israel, I am not done with you. It might seem like it. It might feel like it. But I still love you. I still have a plan and a purpose for your life. And he says, look, there will be a day when you go home. A day is coming when you'll go back to Israel. And what I want you to remember, Israel, through all these years of exile, what I want you to hold on to is that when it happens, it's because of my promise to you. It's because I'm still your God and you're still my people. And so this really is the interpretive lens for this whole chapter. It's why the Chronicler begins with those words, because he wants us to view everything that happens through this lens of God's promise-keeping person, that he is always faithful. So When we read the chapter through this lens, we see that it takes on a slightly different tone. It's meaningful that Cyrus' decree isn't framed as some act of a great king. Instead, it is God who moves his heart to send Israel home. It's God who brings Cyrus to allow them not just to go home, but moves his heart in such a way that he says, you actually get to rebuild the temple and worship your God, who I have no state. It's God who leads Cyrus to say, not only will I let you go home and build your temple, I'm also going to give you all your stuff back. I'm going to fund this temple-building project. Cyrus had literally just conquered the world as people knew it. He was the most powerful man in the world. And in mere sentences, the chronicler reminds us that ultimately he is still a servant who does what Yahweh wants him to do. Through this Jeremiah lens, we also notice that this chapter has some striking parallels to Exodus 12. The way God works on the heart of an earthly king. The way uh, that these neighbors kind of help them and give them gold and silver. And so this is meant to be read as a second Exodus. With the same kind of force, the same kind of miraculous power at work. The God of the plagues, the God of the Red Sea is redeeming Israel with the same mighty hand. He has the same kind of love, and he's still calling them to this same purpose that he has had all along. And if you've been with us for this entire five years, uh, this is the theme that we've come back to over and over again. I hope it's not boring or repetitive, but it is what this Old Testament story is about, that God is faithful he is both willing and able to keep his promises. And this is the starting point for the book of Ezra, uh, this reminder of God's power. And again, you, you have to think about what it would have been like for people who had been in Babylon, not for a couple of days, not for a couple of years, but for decades, almost 70. They lived in a world where God's power and love and sovereignty seemed completely absent. Spent 70 years, where moment by moment, found and had to wonder: Does God still have a stake in this? Does He still care what happens to us? Is He still invested in our lives? And with this one moment, God is saying, "Yes, I do. I'm still that guy, and you are still my people." And so, in one sense, this is an invitation to the kind of confidence have in a, in a faithful God. And that is where the chronicler wants us to start, the God who is sovereign over history, who's sovereign over great kings. Uh, and it's meant to be encouraging and hopeful. But at the same time, we know as, as we think about what's happening is that there's also a tension here. And this is a tension, again, that we've seen throughout this series. It's the tension that we see in our lives, this tension between what is now and what is not yet what is already what is not yet what has already been given what god has already done but what he has still yet to do in our lives and our world see god has accomplished this miraculous work of redemption right he's brought israel home that in and of itself is a huge deal we see his power and sovereignty and kingdom at work right now in ezra 1 but at the same time we know That the reality, the practical outworking of that power and sovereignty are very much not yet. There's work to be done. They are coming home to a country in ruins. The temple is a heap of rubble, the walls have been destroyed, the people are worshiping other gods and mixing with other religions. Israel is a mess. Israel looks like my house when Alyssa's been at work all day and I have the kids. And she comes home and just feels this despair because there's toys everywhere and all the cabinet doors in the kitchen are wide open, which, as I understand it, is the worst thing a person can do to a house, leaving the cabinet open. But this is Israel post- post-exile. Everything is messed up. There's brokenness. There's sin. There's destruction. God is bringing his people home, but the work of restoration is just starting, and so there is a lot of reason, fear, and uncertainty, and doubt, and it's important for us to recognize the clear parallels between where we are and where Israel was, to see the now and yet in our story. See, God has brought us this amazing redemption. He's saved us through Jesus. We experience this kingdom life and blessing right now. But we also know that there is so much work to be done in our lives, in our church, in the world around us, The not yet, we have to look far to see that there's a lot of work to be done. And this can lead us to be overwhelmed. I think a lot of times we feel overwhelmed by this not yet, by all the stuff that we have to do, all the stuff that's before us. And it can lead us to a lot of doubt. And so that's why chapter 2 is an important part of the beginning of this story, and I think kind of a complement to the theme of chapter 1. And so let's continue reading. Uh, Ezra chapter 2. Now, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misbar, Bigvai, Rehum, and Banna. The list of men of the people of Israel, the descendants of Perosh, 2,172, of Shephatiah, 75 I'm going to stop there. If you actually have a Bible, don't worry. I'm not going to read through the rest of that. Uh, if you don't, there's about 60 more verses of just names and people who came home. And we have these different descendants. We have priests. We have Levites. We have musicians, gatekeepers of the temple, and the temple servants. And in verse 68, it says, when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. So, again, this is another one of those chapters that can be easy to skip and ignore. But there's an important truth here that I think... Uh, we can take from this chapter. And again, it fits really well with what we saw in chapter one. Because what we see in chapter two is that this is not a list of heroes. This is not a list of a who's who of notable Bible characters, other than Nehemiah, and maybe a few recognize any of these names. Uh, you probably can't pronounce many of the names on this list. And yet. These are the people who God would use for his rebuilding plan. For the very future of his redemptive program, the restoration that happens here is what's going to lead to the life and ministry and death of Jesus himself. All that hangs in the balance. Stakes are high. And God calls a bunch of ordinary people. And in fact, what we find out in later chapters is that not only are these just everyday random people, they're also kind of a broken, messed up people. We see these people struggle with sin, with moral compromise, with fear, with doubt. What we find out is that this group of people is far from perfect, but God chose to use them. In his commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, Dean Ulrich writes, quite simply, perfect people do not live in God's city, enter his presence for worship, or labor on behalf of his kingdom, Rather, redeemed sinners do. And so this chapter reminds us that in God's rebuilding program, the the key thing is not being super awesome. It's not how smart you are. It's not necessarily how gifted you are. It's not all the things that you can do. The most important thing we can do as his people to start off with is simply to show up, to be where God wants you to be, ready to do what God wants you to do. Now really quickly, I want to clear sure that this message isn't simply about uh, coming to church or not coming to church. I'm not calling out the people who aren't here. And I'm not saying that all you have to do is come to church on Sundays. But the fact of the matter is, is that these were the people who chose to come, who chose to show up, to be a part of what God was doing. And they did so in a spiritual sense, but also in a very tangible, practical, physical sense. God, here is where you, you are calling me to be, and so I will be there. And I think it's important we consider for a second the, the choice that we, they had to make. They had been living in Babylon, again, for generations. Probably a good portion of these people who came home were born in Babylon. They had spent their whole lives there. Maybe some of them had remembered their time in Israel, but those memories were probably tainted by trauma of being defeated by Babylon, of the years of sinfulness and violence in Israel. And so they lived in Babylon, and you know, there's kind of conflicting reports about what it was like, but most people believe that it was relatively comfortable. The people who went there had been wealthy and pretty influential. And in Jeremiah, the prophet tells them, hey, build homes. Build homes with gardens. Become part of the life of the city. And so these people probably had homes and friends and jobs. They had routine, the market and favorite places to eat. And at some point, somebody comes to them and says, hey, we need your help. I want you to give up all of this most of you everything you know your whole life and go you've never been and they might have thought maybe i'll do that maybe i'll go but why me what what can i possibly give as you go home to rebuild this temple and rebuild this wall like i've never done any of those things a wall builder i'm not an expert in law i'm I'm just a woman. I'm just a teenager. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a gardener. I'm just, I'm not anybody. And yet the calling remained for all these ordinary people, go home, be where God wants you to be, and be ready to do what he wants you to do. And this is a powerful combination. Ezra 1, we see a powerful, faithful God. And Ezra 2, what we see is a willing, faithful people. And this is a simple formula, but it really is kind of the, the secret sauce of how God does things. And when you think about it, it is kind of the story of the Old Testament in a nutshell. God moving his story forward through people who show up. So you think about this. God, in all his power and might, He could just do everything on his own. He could just make everything happen, but instead he chooses to use people filled with his presence and spirit. So he could have ruled over the garden all on his own. God could have named the animals. God could have raised up crops, but he created man and woman to bear his image and rule over this world. He could have just sent plagues directly to Pharaoh. He could have sent a voice from heaven, let my people go, and done everything. He didn't need anyone, but he sent, he sent Aaron. He could have built up a beautiful nation, constructed a lavish temple all by himself, putting together a little cedar logs like Lego, he raised up David. He could have save the world, and proclaim the message of the gospel through any way he wanted to, but he called the church. And all of these people, the one common thread is that they are far from perfect. All these people are sinful, broken, messed up, and they don't always get things right. But what's also true is that they all moved God's story forward in their imperfection. God's restorative story takes as they showed up. Uh, this past week, I had a, a really good long conversation with Pastor Nick, and uh, I think we're both feeling pretty nostalgic these days as he gets ready to uh, move on to his next phase as a senior pastor. I'm so excited for him, but I'm starting to get really sad. And talking and, and thinking about you know, where we've been, these years of ministry, and you know, where God is leading us. But one of the things that we talked about and that we've talked about a lot over the years is how hard it is to just lead authentically. Uh, I can't speak 100% for him, but I can tell you from my own experience that being a pastor is is a really vulnerable thing. Uh, It's tough to trust that being who you are, leading out of just who God made me to be, and to trust that that's enough. Whether that's preaching a sermon, whether that's leading a small group, whether that's just coming and attending an event. To just say, okay, I'm I'm just going to come. And there's this continuing process every single day, every thing I do, every week, every year, on and on and on, to choose that perspective, to have this attitude. On one hand, not to give up because the task is too hard, not to throw in the towel because of the immensity of leading a church, but also not relying on trying to be the coolest, most relevant, smartest leader, but instead trusting that God is faithful to his church, that he's called me for some reason, and that he will use me in my imperfection and inability to move his story forward, even if it's not in the way that I expect. And so much of healthy ministry is showing up with this attitude. Saying, God, this this is what I got. I'm not going to try to be somebody else. I'm not going to pretend I'm something different. But I know you can do something with this, with me, with exactly who you made me to be. And whether you're a pastor or not, God uses us when when we genuinely believe this. God can do more than you think uh, with that kind of faith. And that's true of every person in this room. That when you show up, God will use you. And when we believe that, our church moves forward, the gospel moves forward, God rebuilds and restores. As we begin to jump into this series, I think that's the question that we want to put before you How does God want me to show up in this season? Uh, maybe it is coming back to church. Maybe it's making church, maybe it's serving in a ministry or, or leading us being in a small group. Maybe it's praying for the church. Maybe it's going to vision school. Maybe it's something that God has been putting on your heart. But where does God want me to be? now if you're if you're paying attention, you might notice that these are basically the exact same questions that Pastor Eric asked last week as he talked about his experience. Uh, doing missions in the Middle East. And as I was uh, listening to his message, my first thought was, oh no, this is exactly what I'm going to talk about next Sunday. What I do now? Should I rewrite it? Should I change it? But the more I thought about it, the more I prayed about it, the more I realized that it's not an accident that this is the message that God gave each of us for these two weeks. I mean, think about how different those starting points are. Missions in the Middle East, Ezra and Nehemiah. And God put it on both of our hearts, this same message. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Because at the end of the day, we believe that this is the message that God has for our church, for where we are right now, for this season. Because we do believe that God is is building something. That God is working and we're excited about what He's doing. We're excited that, that, that something new, something fresh can happen for our church and in our people and in our community. But we also believe that probably the most important thing, the thing that will define how that story goes, is, is not necessarily what we do, but it's whether our people as a body, as a community, if we show up together and we work together and we rebuild together. And so the rest of these books, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, as we walk through them the next uh, five weeks, they do paint us a picture of what it looks like to rebuild, and we'll talk about some of the hard choices that we have to make in this process, the kind of faith that God calls us to have as we show up and as we move forward and as he begins to use us. But it begins with these two chapters. And I think we're we're meant to start here and just have a moment where we sit in this sense of hope and possibility, excitement about the opportunity and and what God might do through this group of people who come home and, and show up. And so this is the tone of the chapter. We hope it's the tone of this series. Uh, And more than anything, we hope it's the tone of of this season at our church. That we would feel hopeful. That we would feel excited. That we would sense the opportunity before us. And we would come every week. We would come in whatever we do with this attitude. Uh, Let's pray together.